This podcast is proudly sponsored by SideFX Software, makers of the new Houdini 12. Faster, easier, and more productive with the new Flip Fluid Solver, dynamic fracturing tools, and streamlined lighting workflow, giving artists more control in their day-to-day work. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, I'm Mike Zimmer, and welcome to this week's RC podcast here at FX Guide, covering digital cinematography as we always do. This week on the show, Jason and I are going to be talking about the 5D Mark III, the D16 Bolex, and also talking to two key DOPs, Ed Moore in London and in our Red Room interview. This week we're talking to Matthew Allard, who's in Kuala Lumpur. Um, also, just wanted to flag the fact that uh, we've got a new sponsor with us this week. I want to say thanks to those guys for supporting us here at the RC. There's a lot of really great stuff coming up here on the RC podcast. Look, our role here on the podcast, I guess, is to mine the news, the filter, the blogs, to go down the rat holes, to do the stuff that we do. It's basically the camera tech that Jason and I are discussing, obsessing about, arguing about uh, with my good friend Jason Wingrove, who I really haven't seen much lately because, no. Jason, you've been off so how are you? doing interesting things around Hello, the world. Hello, everybody. Sorry, it's been a while. We're really pretty slack. I am. I was going to say, speak for yourself, my friend. Busy. Apologies. Actually, I shouldn't say speak for yourself. I think you've been working really, really hard. Yeah, no, it's good. I was just saying, I was sitting here in the pod. It's very quiet. It's very, it's very, it's quite dark. It's very still. I may just drift off. Okay. <laughs> well, you can't do that because you have so much interesting <laughs> we stuff. We sure freaking have. It's, so, it's a busy, busy. Coming busy up later day. in the show, um, we're going to be doing an interview with Ed Moore. Ed's a bit of a regular on the show, um, coming to us from London, talking to us about shooting on the F-65, which I must admit I myself was doing this week, mm. uh, and uh, uh, C-300, and shooting Epic on uh, Red Dwarf. So that's all coming up later in the show. And then you have an interview as well. Yeah, I'm speaking to Matt Allard, who uh, is a shooter for Al Jazeera and is uh, on the road a lot. And he's shooting a lot of F3 in the field, which is uh, pretty crazy. Tales of dragging 20 cases of gear, 300 days a year on the road. He's, uh, yeah, great trip, great chat with him. That's all coming up later in the show. But this week we actually have quite a bit of news. And now... The RC News. Um, we had a quiet week, I think, uh, last time we did the show. This week, far from it. Um, so, Jace, have you ordered a 5D Mark III? Duh. Yes, I have, actually. Um, I, I think it's been much a no-brainer. I don't understand what the controversy is. I keep hearing people saying, oh, I'm not very happy with the specs. and so just, uh, Come on. It's, I mean, there's pretty much... For me, every single thing that I had an issue with or every single thing that was a niggling sort of bugbear, apart from the fact that, you know, HDMI, that's still there. You, know, you can't really get rid of that unless you start to move to cameras as yet uninvented. But um, uh, every, pretty much everything else has been ticked off for me. And uh, it's still going to be a DSLR. You're still going to westle with that form factor. This is still a, you know, this is still uh, what it is. Well, this is not a C300. It's exactly the same form factor. I think what would be really inconvenient if it was just a bit different, thus meaning <laughs> that, you know, nothing worked anymore. I think it's about a millimeter or 1.4 millimeters higher, I think. And, and they've changed a couple of little things. But yeah, I can yeah it's, it's minor. Hopefully, you should be able to, if you have a cage with a bottom plate and uh, something fits into the hot shoe, you may get stitched up. Otherwise, everything everything's, um, should be pretty similar. All right, let me give you, let me give you my, Mike Seymour's 10 questions about the 5D Mark III. I'm going to give you some, some product features. You tell me whether they're important and whether they were the sort of things that were that important to you that you thought, this has clinched it for me, then I'm going to upgrade to um, it from the Mark II. So firstly, 
it hasn't changed really in megapixels. It's a 22 megapixel camera as a stills camera. It's gone from 22 to 22.1, I think. So okay. what they did is they made it, uh, It's at least width-wise, because, of course, um, a stills frame is different ratio to 16 by 9 for video. They've made it the uh, one-third of the width, uh, uh, Sorry, three times, times the width of um, 1920. But did megapixels matter to you, other than nope. that convenient? No, it's what they're doing with these pixels. Is um, it's the design of the sensor, which is what's improved it. Um, now, by that you mean what? The, the fact that it's the new the pixel pix, pixel pixel pitch is still the same, but I think rather than having gaps between the pixels, they almost have the, like these little light collectors. So they're actually gathering light from even within where there would have been gaps before. So even though the pixels are the same distance apart they're actually collecting more light so and you care about this why we care about this well, it's, two, it's two stops they say two stops of iso faster um and apart from apart from that it's actually there's a lot more stuff happening in the back end with noise reduction and it's just a generally a, a far no, less noisy less noisy camera so which is terrific i mean i never really found that much of an issue with um with the camera in that department for me. So point number two, noise, isn't the big thing that's making you upgrade? Nope. Is that latitude, the fact that it's got those two stops and... I don't know. I think, I think we'll have to sort of see in terms of latitude we're actually going to get out of it. Like I, I don't have to imagine. So to if, you can, if you can then find that you can push that, back, that bottom end because you're getting uh, less noise... Then yes, you, you're going to have latitude. Latitude isn't is no doubt. If we can then, if you need to underexpose a bit to protect your highlights, but then you can start digging all that information out of the bottom end. Then I guess yeah, we are going to have more latitude for sure. Okay. Well, what about the fact that it's changed its sort of way of outputting the nineteen twenty by ten eighty? This is probably a, this is probably the biggest thing I think. So the more a pattern, the problems with weird ties. Not so much more as the, the, the what it's outputting when you're recording because one of the big things, even with a monitor like the small HD DP6, which is really quite quick in changing resolutions because you're, you're relying on judging your focus and, and just having a, having a good view of the world through uh, the HDMI output. Uh, uh, with the 5D Mark II, of course, it goes from, I think, 720p, and then as soon as you roll, it turns into even less than PAL almost. It's like 480p you end up with. So you're trying to judge. You're actually almost better when you record to plug in the bloody PAL, you know, the the PAL 3.5-inch jack on the side, and you're going to have a better chance of judging focus. And the other thing that happened, of course, is when you rolled, you'd get this monitor blanking out thing where everything would go black for a variable variable amount of distance, and that was generally when things were happening and you needed to reframe or you need to go from your slate to your subject or... So, sorry, or so can I summarise this? Literally, it's, it's work with the video output, not its actual recording is a big deal for this you. is it's the video output while you're recording so 5d would go would change resolutions when you rolled and the uh, mark 3 is going to stays at 720p in preview mode and when you roll it stays at 720p and so is there's this, no change in resolution you're not intending on recording that feed as your primary no i don't i don't really care that's okay. fine so it's just think, literally to make it more workable. i think all the more so when we come and talk about codex but no the main thing is that your monitor's not going to drop out yep. and you're going to be judging your sharps off 720p instead of off pal or less than pal okay. less than pal is 480p less than pal no well know. 
I don't remember. Powers interlaces. I'm happy that's that a I'm, big discussion. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, so yeah, you're not going to have that that dip in in, in image. You're not going to have a blank out, and you're not. And judging sharps off 720p is going to be so much better. So love it. Going loving that. That is that's that's a really big thing. Okay, it's not so much the, of a big thing for 7D owners because they um, are kind of used to that. I don't think the 7D does that much of a change, and I think they get. I think they get the 720p when they record. I, I'm, I'm a bit grey on that. What about the fact that it now records theoretically 29.59 before it stops? In other words, it doesn't have a problem with the file limit so That's that it doesn't record just for 10 minutes and stops. bit of a big thing for me. It's probably a bigger thing it's for you. Thing you do much more longer interviews for me. I this do was me reaching for my tapes. credit card. Hmm? This was definitely me reaching for my credit card. Yeah. Absolutely. To go, so I mean, we've still got that weird taxation limit that we talked about of like the twenty-nine minutes, fifty-nine seconds thing. That uh, this yeah, odd. but half an hour versus ten minutes. Oh was yeah, really painful. Half an hour is a really good long. You know, uh, by that stage, you actually want to stop. You want to gather your thoughts, have a drink of water, give your guest a break. Well, here was the problem I always had with it because we used it for interviews. Because we obviously have epics and other things for for more drama type productions. But when we were shooting interviews, if I'm sitting interviewing a direct supervisor. And I did this quite often, as we're going to do again, you and I, when we go to America mm. in a few weeks. Um, that 10 minutes doesn't sound so bad when you say, well, half an hour interview, you do it three times. But actually, the interviews tend to go longer than half an hour. They go more like an hour. But that's not even the problem. The problem is you start the camera rolling, and you don't get to your first question mm. for a few minutes because you're checking things, and wait a second, I just wanted to, is my tie, and you do just do things. And you tend to lose four or five minutes at the start of the interview. You've hit the record button, yeah. but you haven't actually got into it. And you get your first question, and I'll wait, wait a second, where's my eye line? And, you, and then you go, right, first question, wait, we've got to stop and start again. And as you know, there's that kind of that, that's really hard to judge sometimes, that kind of natural arc to something where, you, the conversation might start out yep. pretty stilted, but then you start to unravel a thread yep. and you go, oh, that leads to two or three other questions. And then if you're, I mean, I know your brain's not like mine, but I tell you, if there's any sort of interruption to that flow, I might have, while someone's talking, I might have two or three ideas for other questions, but if I have to stop and start again, and then I, I you know, I can sometimes lose my thread, as can, you know, the uh, the subject can sometimes go off the boil. So there is that natural curve where you just start to get warmed up and then you drop out. So, mm-hmm. de- hey, 30 minutes is fine. And that is like the natural length of what, you know, what should, would have been probably a camera tape or whatever in the old days anyway. So it's a completely acceptable... Uh, acceptable what about audio monitoring? Audio monitoring and adjusting levels. Oh, I think this is really clever. So this follows on with the uh, what the 1DX will do. And uh, is that you obviously have the jog wheel, uh, the sort of uh, clicking jog wheel on the back of the camera to allow you to navigate the menu and to do a little bit more than just audio. Uh, You can go into quiet mode with this room with the uh, rear um, wheel on the back. And actually, instead of going into turn into some sort of like soft touch wheel like a iPod, like mm-hmm. the old iPod wheel, it's actually a bit of a it comes like a bit of a D pad, a bit of a joypad thing where you can go left, right, and navigate. So while you're recording, um, it's not so much of an issue if you've got external mics and if you've got external recorders and things. But if you happen to have a mic on the top or if you're hand holding, you can start navigating and adjusting audio and uh, adjusting a lot of the settings of the camera without uh, creating any uh, handling noise. So it's literally like a trackpad of your becomes like a trap that's a pretty clever piece of tech i reckon okay what about that's some clever thinking that's take thinking yeah. really thinking out of the box so what do, what do you think about the rolling shutter being reduced by maybe as much as a half you know i've never really 
It's one of those things where you go to test it and you wobble the camera around and you can see it, but I've never seen any of my... And I did a lot of handheld, as you know, and I've never really looked back at a lot of my footage and gone, oh, my God. I mean, apart from stuff where you might shoot out of the... For my stuff, anyway, where you might shoot out the side of a car for, you know, driving footage and all the fence posts are on a lean or out the side of a bullet train or something, but it's ne- that's never really... That's never really we freaked me out. Uh, never really red worried. carpet, and the flashes were going off. Oh, yeah, that is true. That's true. Nice. The last, yeah, the last job I did, we had to get into flame and just, you know, repair a couple of um, flashes mm. were going off. I mean, no one else really cared, but I thought, oh, look, you know, these flashes, the t- top third of the frame was blown out. Flashes firing faster than the frame will uh, take to read out. So, yeah, that, that's that's not very often that happens. I've certainly never seen it in just general busy motion. For some people, this will be it. But the, 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 as what I've heard is that it's been halved. Yeah. So that's probably getting more towards what you would see with film or, 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 or epic or so anyway. With I, I think it needed to be improved. Um, yep. It isn't my number one no. thing, but I do find that it's annoying, especially when we're moving the camera around. Mm. Um Okay, what about, for example, here's one that I'm obviously going to bite at. Um, the video bitrate's gone up. Yeah, now we're yet to sort of see what this um, really means to us. And, of course, you know, as we subscribe and, uh, uh, as Stu will say, it doesn't really matter what bits they are as long as they're the right bits. But uh, it's up to – we now have, as with the 1DX, have two um, compression methods – I believe the lesser, um, less editing friendly, more sort of long gop uh, kind of uh, compression is more like what we're used to with the current 5D. The uh, higher end, the all eye, um, I think the current, the current, the current data rate is about 40 or something megabits a second. Seriously, like all eye. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Why don't they just make it high and low or something? All I and IPB or... Come on. Just... And that's in the menu. Come on, make it low and high or something. But so I think it's basically doubled the megabits a second. Well, what um, do you think about having two card slots? I, I'm not quite sure what it means yet. Do we... Do I we, don't, oh, I don't is, really know. Is one for... You know, I don't know. Yeah. I quite like the idea of having... Just putting an SD card... Just keeping one big fat SD card in there... For emergencies. The other day, I, mean, I do it more with the Epic than with the 5D, where you go yeah. pick up the Epic and you go, great, okay, button on, and, go, and it says no media attached. I think, you know, this is quite a simple thing for someone who spent, you know, a decade plus loading film and putting it on a camera as being like the first step to actually being able to shoot something. So, but so man, there's something about not... <laughs> what, are you, what are you suggesting? I, I don't know. <laughs> well, then you'll, you'll always have something to shoot with, you know what I mean? You'll okay. always... You'll always uh, that emergent thing when you quickly grab your... If you just keep one card in there, regardless of if you're always taking CF cards in and out, in and out, if you want to quickly grab and shoot something, you're always probably going to be able to roll if the if it lets you do video to the SD card. I don't know how the SD versus the CF card slot, how okay, well, that works. I think we're up to 9 or 10, but I'll just keep going. Do you care about there being um, a, a version of SMPTE timecode? Uh, I... I guess. How does it work? We can like jam sync this stuff. I think plugins, audio, and uh, uh, like jam sync the thing. My sound guys will probably be happy because they're constantly hassling me to be able to stick Velcro stuff on the camera to transmit and constantly um, checking before I shoot anything, checking the audio levels from the receiver because a lot of time I just really hate slating. So 
the fallback for that is then I have to feed a, a transmitter from his recorder, a receiver from his recorder, so I can have some uh, scratch sound on the camera files to later then uh, pluralize uh, my yep. camera file yep. with his sound files. So yeah, that's the sort of if if I can just if we can just somehow jam sync or just sync everything up together and then just just uh, not have to slate and not have to have a transmitter on board and not have to check levels every five seconds. Okay, then that would be even better. So I don't, I'm I'm not a real timecode head, and you guys probably more are than me. Is this what does this mean much to you? No, not really. Um, all right, let me ask you the killer question no. though. Not really. Okay. Um, what do you think about the price? Three and a half. Let's call it three and a half for argument's sake. Yeah, well, it's a little bit more. I mean, I think the... No, I don't like it. (laughs) But from what I understand, that we are trying to... They are uh, trying to... dollars gone up a lot since we bought our original 5D Mark II. Yeah. So it's not like we're suffering personally. Yeah. But the dollar, you know, the price of... The price of a, a mark, a brand new Mark II versus the price of a Mark, mark III, three, yes, is uh, there is a considerable uh, what is it, about two two grand difference now. It makes the Mark II look like a bit of a bargain, doesn't it? It sure does, and it makes second. There are going to be so many secondhand Mark IIs. Hmm. Uh, one more as of um, actually, I don't know whether I'll get rid of mine yet. I might give give it to my daughter. Or I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. Well, yet. I'm now seriously tempted to get my Mark II converted to an infrared. Ah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. We should just get one done. It's probably a bit well, here's the thing. I've got my... Um, yeah, we shouldn't get it's one done. It's a bit done. of a niche. It's a bit of a niche, niche item thing. once I've you got do my that. original 5D Mark I. Oh, well, that's what you should be. Have you still got that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's that's what you get. Well, it doesn't do a video. Yeah, because... Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, the thing is, I kept it thinking, well, I should keep it as a reserve camera. How many times do you think I've used it? Yeah, but it's no reserve. It's no... <laughs> It's not a reserve for. It's only yeah, reserve for stills. It's not much of a reserve for your, for your Mark II because no. if you mainly use it as a video camera. Yeah, well, I don't mainly use it, but I do use it as such. Um, yeah. But when I was working on, uh, I've worked on series and stuff, and I used that Mark One as my primary visual effects tool mm. with a twenty mil lens, getting really good textures and stuff. I mean, mm. I used it as a stills camera. I flogged it, it paid its way in that one job alone, so I have no complaint. But I'm, I'm kind of fond of it, but. It's funny when you go back to use it because the menus are different, which All begs right. the question, if you're jumping between a Mark II and a Mark III, the menus are going to be enough different oh, yeah. that you're going to have mem- muscle definitely. memory problem. Definitely. So much more complicated. Even just like you have to you know, constantly work out, do I want all I or IPB? Um, and you know, you're never sure whether your jog wheel is in silent mode or normal mode. And I mean, They will still never be quite sure whether or not you change the aperture by using the button up near the trigger or the round one at the back. You know, right. you always go to change that, and depending on what mode you're in, it, it's right. Is I've it never manual? changed that, and plus, I never change the iris anyway. It's just, just wide open and just stays there. <laughs> can okay. I? Are you done? Can, can I ask you I'm about done, this? Sir. I think your opinion is more interesting than mine. But well, yes, I, I wanted to know about the um, uh, aliasing and whether we're actually going to see something sharper. I think. I think from what I've seen so far, it looks a little bit sharper. The fact that um, it's doing uh it's actually reducing the image versus throwing away information it's compressing it i guess the the big thing for me is i really want when this camera comes out to have a log style recording format so if there was a a cine style that was for video that allowed you to sort of record log 
that would be the thing that would push it out of the ballpark. And that was rumoured uh, pre-release. And because they haven't been released yet, we don't know what's in there. Yeah. But that would be the one that would just... Or, it would be good if or, it was consistent. Or if Technicolor came out with a updated Cine yeah. thing that did that. Because there's so many different formats. And I've noticed, I mean, if I have a few other cameras on set, I'll have Cine style. I'll have... Uh, yeah, that's really a, pro, a problem. I'll have the Pro Lost yeah, one and someone else will have mm-hmm. Cine style and stuff. And, Getting which them is the fine, same. but it's nice to make it a nice, quick, easy, let's make all these cameras the same. Well, you know what I'd like? I'd like um, a user setting that you could save to a CF card pop the CF card, put it into another camera and hit load user setting. Yeah. And every setting on the camera was was logged. So it basically replicated from one camera to the next every yeah. setting you had on the previous camera. Well, like we talked about with the um, the look builder for the Alexa mm-hmm. look builder thing, and actually could, that's what you could use the SD slot for. I mean, imagine that you had an SD card and you said, hey, I'm going to shoot. Yep, sure. Just put this in, yep. load that, and yep. then pass it, it around. Me. Take one, pass it on. Yep, yep take one, yeah. pass it on. Absolutely. But I'm I'm imagining uh, as an overall image. I'm imagining. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. There's other big shit. Okay, there is fifty sixty p. Okay, seventy people have had this for a while, but to have fifty or sixty p. Yeah. No, no. Mm. Well, this is going to be why well, it's going to be big. Uh, well, first of all, we've ne- I've never had it as a five D. Half the uh, joy of having Epic and stuff is the ability to be able to do Off not speed. just the HDR and and and, and raw, but also to overcrank and all that sort of stuff. So the ability to have fifty or sixty p. and to make, have a much more a much nicer 50 or 60p because half of the pain or ha, ha, what I didn't like about some of the uh, the faster speeds on 7D and uh, 1D Mark IV etc was the fact that it was the line skipping yeah, it was, was so much more evident yep. so much more evident totally almost un- unusably on, on yep. some shots so if it's achieving 50 60p without throwing it you know it's just comp- it's just uh, uh, what do we call it it's um, not it's down rising it's not um, it's not throwing stuff away it's um, interpolating scaling it okay down scaling I guess so that's huge We've talked about the seven the seven twenty p output. That's huge. Uh, I love the ability to do audio. Um, if the grade of the preamps and stuff in the camera are a little bit better, so that actually you get a little bit less noise floor. Mm-hmm. Because one, apart from the fact that you couldn't actually change your audio levels, uh, it wasn't the best. It was really only great for scratch audio. The other thing was this uh, the seven d style video stills mode switch thing so you can constantly always be in live view mode that whole thing of every time you turn on the camera or change a lens i'm going to turn it on flick to live view mode and you know it's three different buttons power down here live view mode up mode up here and then roll here this is all in the thumb this is all going to be able to help you with that quick oh my god shoot 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 something's happening over there quick moments the fact that your monitor's not going to blank out for a couple of seconds and you you hit that button and uh, every button that you need quickly is right there by your thumb okay well that's huge by way of comparison then sort of moving on but also i just really would like to compare how do you rate the new uh not new how do you rate the proposed digital bolex so for those people that haven't heard this is a kickstarter program the idea is that um the camera is going to be about the same price as we're talking about for a 5d yeah but with a digital sensor as a cine camera and the idea is that uh it's a kickstarter project so they needed to reach their goal of 100 grand they did it they passed it they're Uh, yeah 300 grand having said that um what they're talking about doing is effectively making the 3k for 3k camera we never got from red yeah 
Actually, speaking of which, have, has Red reacted to this in any forums? I haven't seen... Uh, all I heard was that they were at uh, South by South... The Digital Bollocks people yeah. were, were at South by Southwest and Red popped by and visited them. And I think I believe everyone's still alive. So I don't think there's any issues with that. Um, so this is a candidate's I, I, I haven't heard this. There's no, no, no public. Um, I think, you know, two-thirds is dead to, uh, to Red. They've moved on, and, and of I course, think anything below 4K is yeah, dead to red. They've, yeah, they've hung their hat on the whole 4K thing now, and they've moved and elevated everything up to that level. So I think this is. I think they actually probably go. Oh, thank God that for people who can't do epics and who won't shut up about the fact that. Sorry, who can't do a Scarlet and won't shut up about the fact that Scarlet isn't what it was. Great. Instead of saying, why don't you go and buy, buy a bloody Sony, they're now going to be able to say, why don't you go buy a digital Bolex? So this camera, which is theoretically going to come out. Uh, by August, which is remarkable. Oh, there's they, so many. They do have a working prototype. Um, yep. We've seen images from it. I'm having trouble seeing the camera for all the red flags in the way. Yeah, but anyway, that's going to have... And they say it's going to have 12-bit 444, though I've got a flag on that one. Yep. Um, but it's going to be... isn't raw... I mean, Cinema DNG is, is kind of raw. We talk, we're talking... But that's the idea, isn't it? It's a raw it's camera not... shooting around 2K mm. for about three grand with the ability to go up to only sort of say 32 frames a second yep. at that level now you can go to hopefully um got 90 frames a second at 480p 480. yeah but this is a this is a kodak sensor so they're not inventing everything from scratch yep it's cmos it's, it's not, cmos it's sorry it's ccd, CCD yep. not cmos not cmos yep so there won't be any rolling shutter but it will be um recording to you know ssds yeah. Basically, what they've done is they've and taken an off-the-shelf, already existing camera back-end. They already have the camera that they've been shooting all of their tests with is an existing, um, I guess you almost call it maybe a scientific camera or an industrial camera, uh, hence the, uh, you know, hence the, the fact that it's a you know, small chip. Uh, and they are coming up with the design and the back end and the user interface and all that sort of stuff because it's basically what this guy does. He designed. He started well. He started off. Apart from them both having a film background, he started off. Um, he designed one of his company designed a like a event kiosk thing, um, and some of that stuff can be quite interesting. But it is all adapt. That is in the same way. That is exactly taking an existing camera and adapting the user interface. So. You know, uh, so punters, are, pissed punters at a party can just go, oh, great, I've got my shot, my just shot a funny picture of me. Okay. I'm going to put it on Facebook. So so this thing wins our industrial design because it looks like a Bolex and it has the Bolex name and that's a fun thing for it to do. Mm. But for the, same price fun, as the fo- <laughs> for the same price as a 5D, yeah. I'm going for a 5D uh, Mark III. And the reason is that even though it says it's shooting raw, which is sort of great, um, I don't think we're going to see... Uh, I mean, if you look at the ISO options on this, 100, 200, and 400. Yeah. If I was using this, I would really hit that ISO limit fast. Mm. And then I would be like, yeah, well, it's good, but I want a really shallow depth of field and I want high ISO. And so you get, I think somebody said this, you get no points for how you did something, only what you did with it. And so the output from this camera, I think, will be, yes, able to be graded, but I just want more latitude in the first place. B... Uh, it won't be able to shoot in such low light conditions, and and then finally, it won't have the lovely shallow depth of field and bokeh and stuff that we've been talking Look, about. It's a great 
coffee table conversation piece for your next 50s hipster party thing. Yeah, unfortunately at three it's going to be great it's a little pricey. fun. You know, what's interesting, if, if it's so, if the Bolex thing is so interesting ergonomically, why do they shot every single one of their test films on a tripod with, you know, just a, a base plate rig, okay? If... The, it, the 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 Bolex was based well, the Bolex was ergonomically based around some rolls of film, right? And it was an interesting retro piece of cool kit based on you know an old piece of technology, right? So if you're going to have the chance to reinvent this thing, why make it this sort of kind of unergonomic phase no, no, kind of piece but, of stuff? But I tell you this, I, I, I mean, for, can I just? I'm going to go back up before I know because this uh, this kind of uh, the whole thing kind of annoys me a little bit, but. I know that's really negative, but I, a, I, I applaud them for what they're doing, and I know there's a market for something funky and interesting and cool because I went and bought a Fuji X100. I know the, how retro cool can suck you in. It's, uh, and I know there's, they've already pre-sold all of their 80, whatever, so 100 cameras. They've also pre, pre-sold all of their high-end uh, packages on, on Kickstarter. They've made, made more than their money on, kick, on, on you know, I, I mean... More power to them, terrific. They've found a niche, it's fantastic. All, all the fixie bike soccer mums are all racing to uh, PayPal to, to, to sign up. Uh, uh, but I just, I, I, I don't understand. If, you're gonna, if you've got the chance to reinvent the wheel, why use a really old wheel as your basis? You know, if you've got a chance to redo it, why, why is the hipster thing, why is the, the, the retro cool thing a great way to, to, to base your ergonomics on? If you look at something like the Iconoscope, right, which is really small, cinema DNG, two-thirds inch camera, yes, it's twice this price, right? But they started off with something that is amazingly ergonomic. It's like, it's like someone ran over an Arton. You still pick it up and you put it on your shoulder and it has the hand grips molded in. It's designed to be used for you know as a a document as a documentary easy to as we know with 5d as stuff gets smaller it the ergonomics has to get better you know as something gets smaller and lighter ergonomics needs to uh counteract that by being you know making it easier and more stable to hold the whole bolex thing is terrific if you're you know wanting to shoot baby's first steps in the 30s okay but not, not, not now. Okay. So, so my point of view is, is okay. vastly different, and it's this. If this was coming out from Sony or from Panasonic, yep. then I'd accept your criticism. I would agree with it. But the world isn't so needed to be homogenized that it isn't okay to have a branch for a small group to have something different that's just quirky and interesting because no one is suggesting that these guys are going to be the next Sony, Panasonic, or even the next Red. I mean, at, at, at Red's level, they're trying to make films that are going to be used in stereo rigs, they're going to try to make stuff that's going to be used on major feature films, episodics, commercials. It's all about matte boxes and all of the stuff that goes with the cameras and, and all of that because that's like a direct line between cinema cameras and cinema production and working DOPs on a daily basis. This camera this isn't aimed at those people. This is aimed at somebody that would like a camera themselves to shoot their own stuff on. That's kind of fun. And if they make 200 of these cameras and don't go out of business, then they'll be really, really happy. And look, I've got to tell if you... If they get it done... Yeah. Yeah. You know, if they They've get got it done, a lot sure, of money now saying make it. They don't have make that much money. By August, okay? It's crazy. Well, They're only just starting to do tooling now. Is it really going to be August? Bullshit. This okay, thing is never going to make it by August God. for a start. Don't start me with all the rest of the, the weird... It's I raw, think, but it's not raw, but it's cinema... But 
it, I, I say good luck to them. I personally uh, yeah, absolutely. don't want to drop my money on it because I think a five D is a better investment. Yeah, I but think, I think it's the a curiosity world, at the, best. The world isn't that you know tight that we can't have a couple of interesting quirky cameras out there that are left field. I'm not just. I'm not saying they shouldn't make it. Go ahead, great, make it. Clearly, they're they're about to make it, and people have spent you know a quarter of a million dollars throw, thrown at them to get this done. Hopefully, that'll be enough money to to get it out there. It probably will, seeing as they already the camera itself is already invented. But you're going to people are going to be disappointed. Two thirds. It's not going to create cool, funky five D sort of glorious images. It's going to be just you know nothing better than 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 an iPhone uh, imagery, really. Okay. Can I also What's say? What's the point? Anyway, and 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 what, what the people are going to be left with in six months' time is an interesting, funky little coffee table curiosity to stop the um, uh, stop your. Um, uh, funky magazines falling off your coffee table okay I, 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 that's what I, that's what I think if if you're buying it as a camera if the imagery's not going not going to be there all you're left with is the design and and it's just for people who want to be seen to be shooting something interesting not actually shooting something interesting yes I, I can see your point um, I think one of the things there. there's two other things about that are interesting one is I don't think it's a lot of money. Because quite frankly, no, it's not. Cool. $283,000 is not a huge amount. If you think like you had no. less two people working on salary um, and then you had to actually buy things, I mm. mean, there's, there's not much money to go around considering how much time they're going to have to put into this. So it's a labor of love. And the second thing I'd say that is kind of slightly negative, the only problem with this is that unlike uh, Red in the early days where you could say, well, I don't think they're going to do it, but I'm willing to put down my deposit – I was risking $1,000 on a much bigger, you know, overall number, but also I could pull out that money at any time, and I kind of knew the guy had lots of money, so it wasn't like, you know, there was much risk of him going out of business. But even if all was said and done, it was a deposit on a camera. It wasn't the whole price. On this one, if you went for the full package, you're actually buying your camera for, you know, thousands of dollars, and then you're saying, okay, I've spent $2,500, and then how long does that run for? Like now it's fully cashed up and your money goes into the thing. Like what if it gets delayed to August the following year? Like, Well, that's right. They don't specify which year work? actually. No, but I'm just saying like how does that work, right? Because you've given them all the money for the camera, yeah, you've, not yeah. just a deposit yeah, on a camera. Absolutely. They've got it all. But I, I, I hope but, they work. But, but hey, you were okay with Janard because, right, you know, the guy has shot film since, you know, f- for decades for every single one of his commercials. He knew what he was doing. He had already knew manufacturing and tooling and shipping and marketing. And, yeah. you know, he knew every single thing that was required apart from, you know, as they well, well, well say, they didn't, you know, they didn't know what they were doing in terms of building the camera. But they had all of that yeah. background. And, I don't know, you've got a guy who takes technology and adapts it. I have no problem with this guy. I'm just saying that it's just a different model to pay for your camera in advance. Like, I don't even have to pay for my... Yeah. Um, my 5D's coming out. I had to pay for that. But yeah, the, true. But the lead time was like a few weeks. Yeah, literally. And it's Canon. Yeah, you'll have it in 10 days. But it wasn't it? like yeah. Canon said, buy a new camera now, which we can't even show you one. Which we haven't made yet. Which we haven't made yet, mm. which isn't going to come out till maybe like later in the year. Yeah. That would be like, well, I'll wait till it comes out before I buy it, thanks. Yeah, because, yeah, you... Anyway. Look... Hey, can we? Um, okay, I'm Mr. Negative. I just, you know, no, I understand. that's one point of view. I, I understand where you're coming from. Opinionated? Moi. I just think that I wish these guys well, and I don't think they need to 
in the specific, I don't think they need to address these ergonomic issues because they're not trying to make the definitive camera for everybody. They're just trying to make this camera, yeah. which is a fun camera. Yeah, look, yeah, it's Kickstarter. It's, it's, it's clever. They don't have to sell their soul to any other sort of angel investors or, you know, they don't have to raise the capital by somebody who will actually then own a piece of them. They can raise it all and sell the cameras and and still own everything they make apart from whatever the deal is. I think I think it's just the it's the reliance on the old and reliance on the Bolex name and, and the fact that they didn't really want to announce anything until they actually had Bolex tied up that I don't know, that shouldn't really that shouldn't be matter. It should it be fun. it's a camera. It should be camera first and then Oh, no, look, you fun. make the best thing you can for, you know, if you're designing, if it's all about the design of it, then that's all you're left with it when you get it. Great, it's a cool design, but, you know, it's just camera, it's the outside first and then the inside afterwards. And It's not a camera that says, just I forward, take my like. imagery really, really seriously. Mm. It's a camera that says, I want to have some fun with this stuff. Yeah, until your wrist. <laughs> okay. Need, until you need to, you, all the money you save on this camera, you can ke- keep it aside for physio. Okay. Hey, um, should we go to our first interview? Okay. So, um, <clears throat> for those of you that um, that listen to the RC quite a bit, you may have heard me talk to Ed Moore before. Ed is a DOP working in London. Um, I've shot with uh, Ed. So have you, Jase? Mm. Great guy. Um, he has just come off doing Red Dwarf and. Uh, I'm going to chat to him briefly about that, though this is not a spoiler for the TV show Red Dwarf, which is still in uh, in post-production and production. Um, but he has already posted some videos showing some of the kit that he used on that uh, production with the producer's um, blessing, so we can talk about that, and I think it's kind of interesting. But he's then uh, been shooting what is, we believe, the first uh, professional F65 um, spot in the UK. So that's really interesting. We have a really good um, chat about the F65, which I... When I spoke to Ed, I hadn't shot with the F65 right after I got off uh, doing this interview. Um, I then went on to an F65 shoot. And then... Oh, uh, is this what they were shooting with Anamorphics? And and then, yes. And then after right. that, we go. he's going to Africa, sorry, uh, to shoot um, with the C300. So let's have a listen to that interview now. So I'm joined by my good friend, Ed Moore. How are you, Ed? I'm very good, Mike. Thank you for having me. Now, you're too busy to have probably listened to the uh, last RC, but we were discussing the state <laughs> of cameras, and we discussed a whole range of cameras, and then I looked up uh, during the week, and you were using all of them. So <laughs> I thought we'd get you on the show. <laughs> Rather than us, uh, Jason and I, talking about them, we thought we'd actually get you um, talking about filming with them, which is a novel thought. Um, and uh, I guess you've just finished uh, an F65 spot. What was that? That was, well, we think it might have been the first F65 uh, actual commercial shoot rather than a test shoot in Europe. We think it might be, but it was um, it, it was very simple ad, just um, uh, an actress performing in front of a blue screen, uh, but it's for a, a TV ad, a national TV ad here in the UK uh, that I can't say too much about, but um, that'll be out in a few months. So rather than talk about the content, let's just talk about the camera. How did you find it? I I really liked it actually. I really well. The opportunity came up. It was it, the rental company Shoot Blue, who have uh, done a lot of stuff with uh, over the last couple of years, and they um, have supplied with um, with this production company that, that the ad was was with um, various cameras in the past. And the last one was um, was on an F3 with a, a Key Pro, uh, and that was kind of the route we thought we were going to go for this one. Um, only I just spotted that they'd um, invested in the F65, so everything kind of came together. 
Um, they wanted to try it out on the shoot. Um, we, the uh, the guys from Yo Yotto who make the kind of daily software wanted to um, test their stuff kind of uh, for real, and uh, and Sony uh, and Television Magazine over here wanted to do some sort of PR, so we were able to to put everything together. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a I really like it. It's a really big camera, um, and it, it produces really big files. Pretty big. I mean, uh, that would be my you know practical consideration about it. Like obviously. We can get into some of the technical specs on getting it back. But when I first saw it at, I think, NAB last year, I was just struck by the physical weight of it, which for me translates into every other piece of kit you need, right? Like you need a good set of legs. Did you find that an issue? It's not a run and gun um, type of a camera. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, if you, you know, if you're doing sort of slow considered, you know, drama or commercials or something or you know you've got a kind of biggish crew then then you know it's not going to affect you but it is kind of you know millennium or you know four three five sized um especially probably bigger with the with the recorder on the back um so uh yeah i mean it it did affect us we i mean just as a you know as one example i want the camera was um was on a dolly and then on the on a jib let on the jib on the dolly later in the day so i just wanted the whole thing to be on a remote head the whole day and i'd kind of um i'd let the grip know that that we were dealing with a a biggish camera and you know on top of the the camera being big i I was using the the optimo 12 um 12 to 1 uh 24 290s it was it was a bit of a beast and i'd sort of said to the grip yes it's going to be a pretty big camera and he was like you know typical kind of grip um confidence oh yes no problem so we had the the power pod head um uh and and as it turned out the head wasn't a problem but we were using you know like a peewee three uh plus i think it is dolly and um when he saw the uh you know the size of the camera he was like do you know what we we could really have done with the you know the the dolly up from this whether it's the hybrid or the you know i'm not quite sure um and so that you know it didn't cause a problem in that instance but it definitely it wouldn't have gone on you know uh indie dolly or something like that it you know it is a real beast so the camera has a bunch of things that are kind of interesting and where I'm keen to talk to you about this is like the practicalities of how relevant they are. So let's just work our way through them. And I'm not trying to pick at the camera. I'm just simply, you know, from a DOP's point of view, how they play. And the first is that there's 4K going on. So did you have any need to be shooting stuff at sort of like a high resolution or was it, I mean, for example, blowing up stuff in post or was that not really a consideration? Uh, for this particular shoot, uh, no, it wasn't really. But then one of the reasons why I felt pretty confident just saying to the you know the director and the production company and the post guys, you know, we can this is going to be this isn't going to cause us any problems, despite the fact it's so new, is that the the ad itself was you know pretty simple. Um, there were only kind of seven or eight shots. It was all blue screen, and we weren't on a demanding schedule, so you know we had some time to play with it. So if it had been a more complicated shoot, um, sort of, I probably wouldn't have used this for the first time but i mean as it was and yeah in terms of the yeah I mean, my understanding is that the sensor is kind of 8k but they only let you get 4k out of it um so um the 4k files were useful in the sense that it was all blue screen and we had you know loads of detail so i'm expecting we, we were able to conform back to the 4k stuff uh thanks to shoot blues kind of post side so uh, the the post guys are very excited about putting the key from the 4K rather than just sort of HD. So I think it will it will show benefits. Um, were you shooting green screen or blue screen? Well, sorry, we're shooting blue screen because the uh, subject had a lot of kind of green uh, costume issues. Um, so yeah, it was blue. 
And so how were you lighting that? Were you lighting, I mean, in terms of stops to the foreground, what, how were you lighting it? Uh, so I lit that, we were rating, I rated it 320 just because uh, I've got burnt before with the sort of 800 native. Uh, I think 800 is good for, um, you know, a lot of these sensors. I think it's really good outside kind of stuff and studios. It just, it just definitely helps, I find, to, to get a little, a little lower on the noise. So we were 320 and about 5.6 um, just to get... Uh, you know, to to help with the key slightly around the edges, and um, that was lit with breezer lights and you know the usual kind of space lights and 10k stuff like that. But but I was wondering, were you lighting the blue screen up in level? Or was it uh, down a stop? Uh, it was it was pretty much at key actually. Right. Uh, it was all yeah spot metering at, at five six. Um, but it, it um it hasn't. It's funny because I haven't used a, a actual just blue screen. It's been green for years and years. Everything I've done, and I actually you know forgotten that you just you well to my eye you just get a lot less spill off the blue it's just a lot less kind of you know reflective and things so uh, it was quite nice in that respect it just felt like i was fighting blue spill less you'll you probably tell me technically i'm talking rubbish and it's just the same it's just different color but it, <laughs> it felt like it was easier well it all does depend as you say on the foreground and of course the other thing that it has is this expanded uh, latitude or color gamut stuff um, yeah yeah did you feel that the camera was because you rated it fairly low at, at 320 but they you know sell the camera in yeah. terms of exposure latitude and sensitivity yeah and it gives you this nice little readout on the side that sort of um guesstimates how many stops above it reckons you've got in latitude so i think it's um excuse me it's um 320 it was telling me i had four stops above and obviously lots below um and we did have i mean the opening shot of the ad has got this kind of um you know gold glittery curtain that the um performer steps through and that was you know tons of highlights and all over the place and um that the, the, yeah definitely definitely were clipped on um you know the f3 and um and we seem to be we seem to be holding all of that stuff so even with it at 320 there seemed to be lots of highlight detail still to play with did you have any reason to shoot off speed? Because it goes up to 120 frames, I think. We didn't know. I'm mm, understanding at the moment is the that that actual camera went onto a, a music video that I ended up shooting a bit of behind the scenes for on the Friday, and they did do uh, they did do 60, and I, I think that there is a firmware thing at the moment where 60 is a bit of a a cheat or yeah i think i'm not totally sure about how i think you can go 60 frames at sort of the 4k res that we've been talking about okay. but you can go down a bit in resolution and go up to 120 i think that's uh, how it okay works. And, and you have to window it or it um it scales it well now i was going to ask you that um, <laughs> no, I, I'm, um I, yeah well, i'm not sure yeah i mean their, their plan for this camera seems to be to keep it super high end so it wouldn't surprise me if it was scaling it but um no actually you, you do do it i just i just checked you do it without windowing um okay uh, you get high speeds with that windowing. Hey, um, so the other thing that is significant, you know, I think you might have touched on it a little earlier, is just the recording and the fact that you're recording quite a lot of data. Now, yeah. Sony obviously pioneered SR, HDSR and stuff. This doesn't have yeah. a tape deck, but it does have what's called, what, the SR Master? Is that what you were recording to? Uh, so, yeah, we had the SRR4, they call it. And there's, so there's two versions. The, there's the R4 and the R1. Um, and the, the difference is that the R4 can record the, the uh, F65 RAW. Um, and, but both the, the R1 and the R4, though, they don't, 
the R4 doesn't do it just yet, but I think it's just about to be turned on. They'll also record in the the HDCAM SR codec um, in yeah. various bit rates and things. So uh, I think Sony's idea is that you can use the R1 on, on cameras like the, the F3 and get um, much better quality out of them. But the to, to benefit from the, the roar of the F65, you need the R4. So the, the SR-R4 is recording to solid-state memory. Um incredibly expensive solid state memory yeah <laughs> yes i was about to say that um so tell me what was the workflow on set like how long were you shooting before you'd have to swap a mag and how how are you dumping that information off and how disruptive was it or not so i'm not totally sure which mags we were using i want to say there were 256 I, I certainly know we were getting 14 minute loads um at uh, 25 frames in, in raw um so you could probably figure that out but but um yeah it, it wasn't disruptive in, in terms of that kind of workflow it would have been disruptive obviously if we were shooting a documentary um, or something where we were we were endlessly churning through i mean we shot maybe maybe 60 minutes worth of footage over the whole day so even in kind of f60 raw files we were, we were keeping up um, but the workflow we were used was all based around this yo-yo software and the guys uh, yo yotta is the company and um, uh, they've kind of you know tied in with sony at an early stage so they can their software understands the f65 raw um, and actually that i think they're working pretty closely now with uh, post blue which is the um, the post side of the rental company shoot blue to develop that and, and kind of in the right direction so it, it would go the the mags would go to them and they would have a sony uh reader that would take in the uh you know the the solid state kind of mag that would then transfer over 10 gig ethernet to their raid um going via i think some sony software that controls that um that kind of deck and then they would use yo-yo to um convert the S- the f65 raw files to um dnx hd for the offline and then we use the same software to do the conform at the end but the the what the the yo-yo software lets you do is apply um sort of various i think they restrict it to the is it the cdl the um the sort of very basic mm-hmm. set of color information yep. yeah so so um yeah so you can kind of do they had a, a control surface um uh, on that system and i was able to just pop over they had a you know proper monitor and i was able just to tweak the uh, offline files as they went off so that the the, the clients and everything were seeing a reasonably kind of graded look uh for the the avid stuff now, of course, you and I have worked together in the past on all sorts of things, including stuff that was shot on like 5D uh, Mark II stuff. But recently yeah. you've been on Red Dwarf um, and working, doing Steadicam on that. Um, that's shooting on Epics. Uh, in terms of like sort of working with the camera, I mean, you couldn't get this F65 pretty re- easily on a Steadicam rig, at least certainly not the ones that I'm used to um, lugging around. Uh, you'd be, yeah, you'd be at the top end of the Steadicam rigs for the F65. So sort of compare and contrast your experiences with the epic with the f65 and kind of a i mean is there a sensible comparison uh they seem in one sense to be similar because the 4k and completely different in terms of form factor and just approach in another sure well i mean uh, obviously my role was very different i mean red yep. dwarf i was kind of b camera operator it was it was steady camera yet you know, every now and then mostly b camera the, the idea originally was that i was going to be second unit dp and in the end we, you know i did like two shots so it's not i'm not sure whether that's a, a title i can realistically claim but you know i certainly wasn't um really seeing any of the images downstream of, of the set but um except for when we would do our kind of live to the audience shows once a week in which case the 
the stuff we'd shot earlier in the week had been cut together and played in. So that was the only time I, I really saw footage that it, we'd shot. But um, I mean, the footage looked great in so much as I could I could tell. It's an unusual um, thing, though. I mean, uh, and obviously I spoken to a lot of the guys about this, but we're not going to get into the show, but obviously it was an unusual thing to use the epics in a live audience, uh, multicam environment like that. Did yeah. it work? Uh, I think it did, yeah. I mean, it, some, it was such a kind of fast-paced production that we really didn't have time um, to, uh, was going to say, think about it. We thought about it, but we didn't certainly didn't have time for it to go wrong. If it had been kind of, if we'd had huge problems, we would have found out about it quickly. And we had, um, you know, the Epic M's with the kind of slightly more handmade ones. And there were, there were a couple of kind of teething issues. And, um, yeah, I'm not totally convinced about some of the ergonomics of them and, you know, where the, uh, the various connectors are and bits and pieces like that. But, I mean, broadly speaking, we had four cameras and, they slowed us down, you know, not that often, to be honest. And in terms of, you know, the rigs, you obviously had some special stuff like tally lights and stuff. But the Epic, just thinking about the camera now um, versus the F65. Yeah. Do you have a sort of a natural, if I was going to come to you and do a another commercial in London and I gave you the choice between the two, which way you'd lean? Or you'd really have to know the script well before you'd pick one over the other? Um, well, that's a tough one. I mean, the, the epic, um, I mean, there's no denying that it is a tiny fraction of the, you know, the volume and weight of the, of the F65. So, I mean, it is amazing that, that for, you know, broadly speaking, a similar, at least ballpark of output files that, that vastly different engineering kind of uh, outcomes um, have happened there but um, yeah I mean I, I would lean towards the the F65 if I could have the crew to sort of support it um, but uh, just because I'd feel a bit more confident um, that I knew what I was getting and uh, you know the epics we had a few things with kind of black balance things and um, a few things with, with uh, frame drops and things I think a lot of that to be fair is probably limited to these epic m's that we had um but um i mean the form factor every time it was on steadicam uh i was i was so grateful that even it was an epic rather than the red because it just saved you know it just made it, it made it possible to have all sorts of things like the well like you know zooms and bigger map boxes and bigger remote focus and more options in terms of quick release plates and video senders stuff that i probably wouldn't have been able to afford in terms of weight on a bigger camera rig certainly not on the f65 but because the epic itself was so small it just made how we built the rigs a, a little bit more versatile in in that instance in the case of the F65, there is a rotary shutter option. Um, have you sure. ever found... Well, I think it's, at the moment, it's not even an option. I don't think they shit one with just the well, okay. electronic shutter. But I guess my point was, in the case of the Epics and the F65s, did you at any point sort of feel the need to be addressing rolling shutter? Because obviously you do on a 5D Mark II from time to time. Sure. Does it ever kind of bother you? Um, it, I don't remember noticing it on the Epics. I mean, certainly, I mean, again, just because I was DPing on the F65 commercial, I was, I, I tested a lot more that kind of area. Um, I mean, clearly the, you know, the Epic is, uh, well, like in, indeed, even the, the F3 and the C300 is, is, is a big step up from how they're reading out the data compared to the, the DSLRs. So, um, I'm trying to think if I ever noticed rolling shutter on the Epic. I don't think so. I mean, maybe it- if we'd got into kind of strobes and 
flashes we would have noticed, but certainly not kind of day-to-day panning. I, I didn't notice anything. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's a bit of a non-issue in the high cameras now, unless you have a special case that kind of brings it up. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, which brings me around to that uh, C300, because uh, if that's what you've been doing, I think we're allowed to ask, you're about to head off with a C300 for a while? Yeah, it looks like it. I, I have one small music video on the C300, and uh, just the last week, the opportunity's come up to uh, go to a documentary in a refugee camp in uh, northern Kenya for uh, an agency called FilmAid, who kind of screen movies, both kind of Hollywood movies and educational movies in, in refugee camps. Um, so I'm going to be spending about a week out there. And um, I mean, it's exactly the sort of shoe. If you'd asked me two years ago, it would have been, you know, five D all the way, or you know, the Wingrove model, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, but just because the, you know, as the C three hundred is now available, I mean, it's just a kind of no brainer for me. Really, a similar, you know, size and form factor, and you just have all the benefits of just much more solid image uh, at the other end. Yeah, it does seem like a really solid camera. But let me ask you this: since um you know, obviously you wouldn't have had a chance to look at it, no one has, but the 5D Mark III has been announced. If yeah. it was available, would that be a better option, the C300, for this doco coming up? Or is it is it still for you that one is a stills camera that does video and the other is a video camera? Uh, do you know what, for me, I think C300 is really just a real sweet spot. I mean, it would be great if it was my maybe slightly cheaper, but I can understand why they've priced it like that. But just in terms of its of its specs, I mean, it's great for me. I, I, it's even just it's really simple things like having ND in the camera makes a huge difference oh, yeah. to me. And, um, you know, I, I was a big fan of the music video. I love this um, cinema lock option they've put in the menu. You just flick that on. It just turns off half the menus. Half the buttons don't work, and it just saves you all that like every single time i've used you know those kind of size of sony and um canon cameras and my entire career it's always a case of um going through these you know finding all the little picture profile menus and playing with the different gammas and trying this and trying that and obviously there's there's a ton of information online about all those cameras about what works and different people's settings but a lot of the time, you know, a camera turns up in a flight case and you've got to be shooting in like 20 minutes time. And, and just to have that option on the C300 that just sets everything for maximum post flexibility, I just think that's it's such a simple idea, but it's, uh, it's kind of genius. So uh, that, that kind of attitude, I think, speaks volumes about that camera. In terms of shooting with those sorts of cameras, the, that sort of end of the market, um, you can't, at the moment anyway, uh, to the best of our knowledge, necessarily shoot log uh, properly yeah. or legally on a, um, an SLR. Do no, it's just kind of a softer look, right? Yeah. yeah. But do you like to shoot um, and output sort of log files? Because it seems to be a good way to get the most out of what is a relatively small bandwidth. Um, certainly, it seems to me that uh, that in... Sony in the S-Log in the F300 in the um, – also a bit on the ARRI for that matter in uh, in Log C. I, I, I like that yeah. as a format. What about you? Uh, I, I like it. I mean I think that it's um, – I'm changing how I feel about that. I used to very much feel about getting it um, a lot closer in camera straight away because uh, I've been burnt a couple of times with log footage being handled um, incorrectly in, um, in post. But I think that – you know that five years ago, you know, log would be your average unless you were kind of you know you would telecine stuff in, and it would be you know ten bit um, DPX log, and that was a kind of standard high end format, and and so it was only a few post guys um, at, the, at the high end who were kind of used to it, and I think most 
most people would be like, no, it's just a bit milky, and they wouldn't quite click what it was. But I think that's dramatically changing now. That you know, all these cameras that can shoot log on and do those kind of that kind of trick, um, the the knowledge base is is vastly increased. So I feel a lot more confident now shooting. You know, uh, it's, I mean, clearly there's a benefit there um, to be had by, but you have to both be on board both dp and and post about how you're going to handle that and um yeah it seems to be much better these days well the other big thing that's uh something i want to ask you about because we've talked about a lot about these camera bodies but we haven't talked about the lenses that are going on them now presumably on the uh well maybe you could tell you, you i think you mentioned one of the lenses on the f65 what sort of lenses do you have you shot with canon lenses say for example on the epic um do you on the c300 are you going to have like pl mount or what what are you going to be? Going uh, with? So well for Kenya, I mean, I'm just really trying to resist because it's just, the only people going out are me, uh, a photographer from Magnum, who I'm really excited to meet, um, and um, I think maybe someone from the agency, but certainly you know no crew. And I'm really just trying to resist taking a ton of kit that I'll have to to lug around. So I'm trying to limit myself just to the you know the three kind of standard Canon um, L series booms that everyone uses and you know maybe an extender and maybe you know a fast prime or something just so i've got that in the bag but um yeah i mean i'm, I'm interested in the in the pl mount c300 my understanding is they're not you can't change the mount can you, you have no, to buy one or the other um but uh so maybe the c500 um will be something that addresses that um just a completely guess at a model number but um yeah i mean so far i've only seen the canon mount ones right I mean, I find the Canon lenses are tremendously good glass for the price, but just lack yep. the flexibility and focus is probably the best way to describe sure. it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I'm constantly amazed, actually, at the lens market that, that there is such a huge gap between the price of those Canon uh, lenses and as soon as you just have a, a you know a slightly different back on them, i.e. the PL back, the price just shoots up and... Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess you'd have to be a market economist to figure out exactly what's uh, going on. I'd say on three words on that one. Yeah, economies of scale. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> the tens yeah. of thousands a month that they're shipping on uh, the Canon glass just really must make a huge difference. I guess you're right. I mean, let's face it. Like the Genesis, I remember being stunned the day they were like, "Well, you know, they're about three I mean, For the time I was talking to the guys, this is years ago. They were like, oh, "About three hundred cameras," and I'm like, "Where?" And they're like, "No, no, that's it." And I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. kind of expensive to order each bit because you're going to make, you know, even if you have four well, I screws. Remember, I remember the red ones um, when the, you know, 5,000th red one shipped and everyone was just kind of freaking out that there were that many cameras with that size sensor out there. And, you know, that was just kind of, oh, 5,000, is that all? Like, I've, you know, my mate made a camera in his garage that sold more than that. Um, you know, there's big sensors just absolutely everywhere. Yeah. So, um, so in terms of the PL glass, is there anything that you particularly like or don't like? I mean, weight uh, is obviously I mean, a big I mean, issue, so size. Sure. I mean, I, I try and use that 24 to 290 whenever I can afford the size and the weight of it because it's just, you know, I, I mean, I love zoom lenses just for the, um, you know, the, the speed of using them on set, um, and that's obviously a fantastic one. But we, on Red Dwarf, we had uh, both the, the Allura, the 1880, and the, um, I think, 45 250. They were both fantastic, but, um, you know, big, certainly not handheld lenses. Uh, we also had the Optimo Rouge ones, which um, which seemed great. That they just they didn't quite have it. enough. 
they're not too bad. The focus pillars weren't big fans, I think, because they're just lacking some really crucial witness marks. There's no witness mark at uh. 12 feet, I think, and we just <laughs> everything ended up being at 12 feet. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you kind of yeah, I mean, they're they're a bit cheaper. Um, but uh, I also like the the sort of slightly more the pro versions of those, the 1540 and the the 2876 are, are both good. You know, I tend to order those with F3s a lot for kind of handheld and steady cam stuff. They're good. Um, I mean, it's just as soon as you can sort of, if you're lucky enough to to um, work on productions where they can afford reasonable lens budgets, then I mean, there's just so many great lenses out there. You kind of spoil for choice. Yeah. Look, if people want to track you down, not that you've actually got any free time to work for anyone else, but if people want to track you down, um, please track me down and offer me work. <laughs> you're um, you've got a relatively uh, well. Talk about your website because that's a good place to find you, right? Yeah, my website. My website is um, edmoredop.com. Uh, it's more with two O's, R-E. Um, and I'm on Twitter. It's just Edmore as well, just E-D-M-O-O-R-E. Um, yeah, come and uh, hunt me down. So your uh, showreel's there, and I'd recommend people go there and have a look at it because it's great to see the stuff that's on there, though obviously some of the stuff we're talking about isn't there yet. Um, but maybe we'll talk back with you once, uh, say, Dwarf goes to air and we can actually discuss it uh, in some detail. But it's been great talking to you, and I really always always enjoy talking to you, but um, I really appreciate it. Great getting your insights into uh, <laughs> a range of cameras that we've just been uh, talking about uh, I, so recently. It, I just find it crazy how how you know quickly I was talking to you know talking to the, some rental company guys about this about how you know ten years ago you invested in a bunch of digibeaters or um, you know SR3s or something and they sat on the shelf and happily paid themselves off after five years and yeah just running a rental company these days must just be an absolute so stressful because every you know year you, you, there's suddenly a whole bunch more cameras you've got to buy. Um, I, I guess the, the lenses are probably the only relatively safe bet. But um, which begs yeah, the question: Have you invested in cameras? Do you rent yourself uh, and cameras? Sort of, I'm sort of uninvesting in cameras at the moment. Actually, I, 2009, I shot a feature on uh, 5D. My first feature and i i ended up buying a ton of stuff for that because we you know we didn't have i, I did what a lot of cameramen do and you go oh you haven't got any money oh, i'll just spend all my money on it instead because um, <laughs> we are foolish and like pretty pictures um and a lot of that stuff was all kind of dslr sized bits of kit and to be honest i'm just trying to sell a lot of it now because i just i, I don't like you know it's nice to just have the flexibility on any given job to say you know here's the kit list here's a rental company you know you just say to the production you book it and you deal with it because as soon as it becomes kind of oh it's partly my kit and partly their kit then i just find it gets gets quite confusing i think there really was a trend about two or three years ago to get a lot more kit as a dop and then rent it as part of the package of renting you as another way to increase your sort of overall fee though of course you had put out to you know cash to be able to do that the trouble is yeah i'm always curious how well that's worked it's clearly worked very well for some people but i I just worry sometimes i'm just right in and and say i'm an idiot but i always worry sometimes that yeah you do that and suddenly you're you know every time you you get paid for something it feels like you're getting paid four times as much but and people say oh yeah the camera paid for itself in two years and sometimes i think well are you talking about you know are you properly breaking down what of each bill is is paying off the camera or are you saying you know in two years overall you earned what it costs you to buy the camera and 
you know, I, I think that you know the proper big rental companies have. It's not easy to run a rental company, and they've spent a lot of time, you know, making sure they track everything properly like that. And um, I'm just I'm sometimes a bit dubious about how well your sort of average cameraman can, how well they're going to do, kind of making sensible marking decisions in terms of what's going to pay for itself and what's. Unless someone can explain to me depreciation really cleanly in in 20 words or less without having to think about it, they shouldn't be buying kit because, uh, yeah, you can fool yeah. yourself into thinking that you. Make making money you're really not well exactly and you're actually just sort of um you know filling your toy box a little bit maybe the other problem is of course you do tend a little bit to want to therefore use the kit that you've got which as much as you oh, try and resist t- the temptation yeah. may not be the right kit for the job you know it's- and, and i think it's, um i think these days it just could be so frustrating i mean it's like you know i really like the c300 and if i was still running a corporate production company like i did a few years back you know the C300 will be top of my shopping list, but, um, you know, you buy one today, and um, I was joking about the C500 earlier, but, you know, you know something like that's on the cards, and and like, and it's not just, like, on the cards in five years' time. It'll be on the cards next year, I'm sure. And, you know, Alexa now, everyone's sort of looking around and wondering when the inevitable 4K version of the Alexa is going to drop, and you can be sure that somewhere on a test bench in Germany there's a whole bunch of those connected to oscilloscopes and monitors and stuff so you know it's no longer a case where you can buy something and feel relatively certain that whatever job you get booked for that's going to be a good camera for it you're going to buy something and then you know 12 months later you're going to be leaving it on the shelf because you just really want to rent the kind of shiny new camera that's just come out and um that's just a huge complicating factor i think because as you say we like pretty pictures and cool gadgets. we do, we do. <laughs> again thanks my friend great talking to you you're welcome thanks mike bye Okay, well, we still have one more interview coming up later in the show in the Red Room, but thanks, Ed, for that. And uh, really, uh, I love talking to Ed. Um, he's a great guy. Yeah. Hey, um, a little bit of gear news. Should we do gear? Yeah. And now, the RC Gear Guide. It's mainly Red Gear, a couple of announcements, but it's something that sort of prompt a couple of discussions. The first thing is their little Red Station Mini, just a small travel version of the Red Mag uh, reader. Uh, the main change, apart from the fact that it's about probably about two thirds, half the size, uh, is they got rid of USB. Uh, now, when this all came out, you know, everybody was like, "Well, great, that's terrific," but where's the Thunderbolt port? Uh, there is no plan at the moment for Thunderbolt port that we understand. Their main holdback is the fact that there is no real Thunderbolt support for Mac towers. Or any any tower really. Uh, the um, and they are actually uh, to sort of quell that a bit. Uh, announced they are bringing out a USB three uh, USB three version of the Red Mag Reader, which is uh, coming at the end of this month, end of March. Which sort of sort of sparked a little bit of a, a bit of question in Red user and a bit of a, a, a thought um, in my head about. The need for Thunderbolt versus eSATA, um, because uh, someone was popping up in the chat who seemed to be quite uh, knowledgeable, talking about the uh, data rates of the SSD versus eSATA versus Thunderbolt, and there's no point in having anything more than eSATA because eSATA is actually uh, about 280 megabytes a second, and the SSDs are not slow, of course, but they are uh, rated at about 180 to 280 megabytes a second. 
So eSATA is already fast enough for this, and USB 3 is, I think, even twice as fast as the SSD inside can can spit the data out to it. So, uh, A, can we get USB 3 for a Mac? Is there adapters? I'd love to know. Uh, I'm sure there is. What would be great is if it's not something that's this adapter plugged into this plug, plugged into this thing, and all five of these adapters and things all needed a uh, plug pack and four different kinds of cables. That's not the kind of solution I'm after. Uh, I want something small for travel, uh, like we talked about last episode, I think. Um, uh, I mean, Thunderbolt would be good, but uh, because uh, the drives are obviously uh, a lot faster. But um, really, if the SSD can't spit it out very fast, well, what's the point? Discuss. Well, there's, a, there's a lot of point because you want a really small package when you're going on the road to be able to transfer your files because... There's a difference between having a base station where you can offload all your files in a studio environment and what we do in the field. Mm. And a small, you know, Firewire, uh, sorry, Thunderbolt unit would be excellent in the field and I don't care that it doesn't connect to a tower yet. Um, I connect my other drive to that. That's fine. I'm just saying that there's a great need. In other words, a Thunderbolt um, doesn't have to be the be-all and end-all. It just It's a big part of the jigsaw puzzle. isn't there just yet, in, mm. in my opinion. What we need is uh, Thunderbolt drives, and I'm hoping in about uh, four weeks we'll have some more solutions. But we want thund- I want a Thunderbolt drive that's going to have eSATA in it. So then you could actually have the Thunderbolt cable from your Mac or from your laptop to the drive and then um, have eSATA from, from any of these, these uh, readers plugged into that. So you're still going to get the power of the. You're still going to have the speed of the drive. You're going to have um, uh, pretty much everything is going to be. Everything in that chain is going to be as fast or faster than uh, the SSD you're trying to read from. That's just, you know, try, I'm basically just trying to get out of the hotel quicker and get to the bar. There's some other red news that I thought was more interesting. I think than this because that didn't set my afterburners alight. I must say. Um, which is the... Didn't. Well, I, no afterburners were set alight over a red station that doesn't have Thunderbolt no. for me right now. Sorry. Sure. Just no, it was a conversation which I thought you might have found interesting, but that's fine. Let's move on. I didn't have anything else to add, sir. But I would be interested in your opinion on the wireless add-on module thingy that's going on in Epic. Yeah, the Maisla module. Uh, this is out, uh, just being tested on set now. Um, uh, theoretically available... USA summer this year so what's that another three four months yeah uh, this is a brainchild of Stephen Meisler who's a first AC been a first AC for ages he's uh, was on social network and Munich and a lot of um, a lot of high end features he was a camera op actually on Tattoo the feature we, uh, the short we saw red short we saw at uh, last NAB uh, and it's been co-developed and and co-manufactured uh, with 3 Reality Technica. So it's about a two-inch thick DSMC module for Epic and, and Scarlet, I guess for a Scarlet as well. But what's interesting about this is it combines about 50 billion things into one. How it's doing it and how they're fitting it into this small package, I don't know. But uh, full wireless control for focus, zoom and iris. It's compatible with Hayden and Preston motors. Uh, and I presume transmitter-wise, they don't have to be compatible with those transmitters. Uh, we haven't seen the transmitter side of this yet. 
uh, wireless audio receiver built in, so you can be feeding from uh, your audio recorder. You can be feeding uh, audio straight into the the camera. I like that actually. That yep, it's got that I like that in. exactly. And you're not uh, if it's bolted right on the back as a module. I'm presuming it doesn't need any other external plugs, no, no other Canon adapters, nothing. It's feeding it straight hardwire into the into the brain of the machine. Uh, it's what more, most importantly wireless 1080p video transmission. Uh, it looks like it's uh, doing, I'm not sure micro, but it's certainly multiplexing all of this stuff. And it's going to be, uh, I'm hoping, uh, pretty low latency. If it's starting, to, if it's doing audio and video together, they really want the latency really, really short. Otherwise, stuff's going to start getting out of sync. Uh, wireless timecode receiver, so you can be sending timecode to the camera as well. Again, that's probably not going to be ex- need external cables to get it into the machine. Uh, it's got DC out sockets for cine tapes and any other accessories or lens lights or whatever you want to plug in there. And you put a, it's got a V-lock socket right on the back, so you don't need to have any other additional modules to be able to get get DC into the whole thing. And HD SDI outs, gigabit Ethernet, um, a four pin standard four pin camera Canon for DC in, uh, Genlock and timecode BNCs out. So basically, it stops your epic looking like your red one and having a mass of cables, wires and yeah. stick on pieces of Velcro all over it. So it's an awesome box. What do you reckon it's going to sell for? Oh, this is, well, this is, this is, this is big, this is big boys toys. This is going to be, I'd, I'm going to guess upwards of 10, 10 K and up. Easily. I, I was saying it's going to be, yeah, closer to 20 actually. Yeah, it could be. Could, You'd could want well, it to be, well 10, be 20. But People will happily pay because this is replacing an awful lot of gear. But also, it's they're not going to sell that many of them that they'll no, be able to get the price no, down. No, this is not a high numbers. This is going to be probably made to water and this is going to be pretty, uh, um, this is replacing not just a lot of bits and pieces, but it's replacing a lot of pain. If it works, uh, as um, advertised, it's going to be replacing a lot of pain, replacing a lot of cables, a lot of points of failure, a lot of um, dicking around with five different things and five different transmitters, five different receivers, all the batteries for all those particular bits of gear. If it all fits in one, this has definitely come out of the brain of a first AC because <laughs> he's going to have to deal with all of this stuff failing on the camera and what, where did it go wrong? Uh, if it's got one thing to go wrong, <laughs> then excellent. We know where the problem is. But, uh, yeah, if they can make this, I, I'm astounded if they can make this work, this would be quite quite an amazing piece of kit. And uh, it's going to make handheld work um, uh, really, really uh, um, uh, a, whole lot, a whole lot better because just video transmission is still a little bit of a pain. Uh, and all the stuff, and everybody, sing, every single person in the sound department, everybody wants to stick a transmitter and receiver on you and... Um, all of that needs a cable. So, yeah, if this is um, going to work as advertised, then bring it on. But, yes, you get and it. Look, not, not, not without – This is going to be one at NAB. Not without right? a cost. Hmm? Is this so they're going to be one at NAB? Yeah, yeah, there will okay. be one at NAB, which will be terrific. Well, that's something we should – Looking forward to seeing it. Hopefully we'll find out. Over and um, look at – Find out how much it is. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bit beyond me, but if someone's going to buy on rent, the ability to rent it when you need it will be brilliant. It, we see. We shall so, see. in the red room this week, um, we have Matthew Allard. Now, Matthew is what, Jace? Because you did this interview. He's yes, someone I've heard his name. Yeah, he's a he, DOP. Well, Where, he's part Asia of the or? you know DSLR shooter, uh, DSLR news shooter. Right. Uh, com is an excellent blog, really good blog. Um, Dan Chung and Matthew Allard. Matthew. That's where I heard his name from. The, right. yep. um, he's the technical editor. 
so these guys are out on the field. They're really they are shooting all the time. So this is guys contributing to this blog. Uh, some really um, seasoned information, and from you know, from people who are actually out there doing it, uh, not from wannabes. So he he's uh, he got an F three after seeing actually. So he says after seeing um, the test we did the sequel for, for uh, the, yeah for uh, with the, the first pre production F three splendid. Uh, but what uh, what was it interesting to me? I think was the fact that he's. Uh, he's a one. I mean, this is news shooting, but it's not necessarily like cutting edge beta cam like happening now. It's it's more sort of sixty minutes uh, kind of um, okay. backstory, long long form sort of backstory stuff. So, I was really intrigued to find out why you might uh, drag an F three into um, disaster zones and war zones, and uh, what drove drove him to shoot news uh, with large sensor you're entering the red room well people probably know you best as a contributor in the field to the excellent blog one of my favorite blogs uh, dslrnewsshooter.com but you don't really shoot news per se i guess you how do you categorize your work it's more current affairs or well i guess it's sort of well it is news because i work for um, al jazeera english which is a 24-hour um, news channel, I guess, if nobody knows, that's uh, very similar to sort of BBC, CNN, goes around the world to more than 100 countries, has about 250 to 500 million um, potential viewers. So what I do is sort of news, but uh, more so these days I'm doing more sort of feature-style news stories, which uh, used to be longer a couple of years ago, three and a half, four minutes. Um, now they've been sort of trimmed down to, to two and a half minutes, which is a bit sort of frustrating as a shooter because it becomes uh harder to tell a story in a in a sort of shorter amount of time mini 60 minutes piece i guess yeah sort of like mini sort of feature stories they're not sort of you know sort of traditional news i guess as such um i try and make them you know i think my style is a little bit different from how most people probably sort of shoot news i try to make it more of a story than just uh, a piece of news so you sort of want to you know, have a theme to the way you shoot it and a sort of style and sort of try and make people remember the piece. I think that's the most important thing out of out of anything. It's it, News is still, you know, a form of entertainment and it still needs to be visually interesting to watch. And unfortunately, in this day and age, a lot of news is cheap and nasty and handheld and thrown together and a lot of sort of, uh, you know, people shooting on their on their phones and small handy cams. And so I guess I've always been frustrated by that and I'm trying to get quality back into, um, into news coverage. Well, I guess this, yeah, takes me to my next question, which is your shooting on large sensor cameras. Why shoot news stories in often inhospitable conditions and disaster areas with uh, probably some uh, pretty serious um, deadlines and schedules and turnaround times? Why do it to yourself, which you kind of, as I say, you've kind of answered that question. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of like you. I, I love what I do. I don't sort of think of it as a job so much. And I was always frustrated by using traditional sort of ENG cameras and particularly the ones that, uh, that were given at, at Al Jazeera. They're uh, Sony uh, PMW 350s. They're just a half-inch chip, so they're terrible in low light. Um, 
trying to get anything sort of whacked out in, when you're shooting an interview is virtually impossible. Everything seems to be in focus. And um, I was frustrated by that. And uh, the 5D Mark II came along. I, I originally had a, a look at that when it first came out, but uh, because I was shooting for broadcast and it didn't do anything other than 30p or 24p, it sort of wasn't any good to me. So um, I waited around and actually got a uh, picked up a 7D in Korea um, in I think uh, it was September 2009. I got it actually about three three or four weeks, I think, before it came out in the United States. Um, a lot of people probably don't know, but South Korea is actually a, a testing ground for a lot of pieces of equipment in the world, and a lot of stuff tends to get uh, to put out there first rather than, uh, than other countries. I don't know mm. why, but I picked up my 7D there and, and started using it um, for little bits and pieces, and then I started shooting um, entire stories on it. And when I first had it... Uh, it presented quite a few problems. I, this was the you know before I knew about ND faders and and I didn't have uh, external audio. I was actually shooting stuff and I had my PMW three fifty sitting next to me with the audio going into that and then <laughs> I would take the, the audio to record the sound and put it back in. And I didn't have EVFs or monitors and I was doing everything basically off the back screen shooting shooting stories. So was there pushback from that? They actually loved it. Um, I've never sort of had a problem from, from, from Al Jazeera. They, they normally don't like um, progressive material, um, but no one ever said, don't use that camera shooter. I just sort of took it off my own back to, to, start, to start using this thing and did, and, and did a story, actually, the first full story I shot with that camera was on a, um, the last sword maker in Taiwan. This is the guy who made the all the swords and the, the famous Green Destiny sword from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So I shot the entire story on that, mostly in 720p at 50 frames per second and, and slowed a lot of it down and did the story. And it got, um, it, it got rave reviews and it ended up winning um, the Neil Davis International uh, News Award at the ACS um, a couple of yes. years ago. Yeah, well, it does. Year. It has paid off. I remember being attending an ACS awards where I'm sure you won gold, silver, and bronze, all in the same category. Yeah, this was yeah, this was the yeah, this was the year four. So it was quite funny thinking this was like a you know a twelve hundred dollar camera where I had no audio, I had no extra accessories, I had nothing. I shot this entire story in about three or four hours. So you've moved on from the seven uh, D. Yeah, I I started using the seven D and then I used the five D. Obviously, I couldn't use it for every sort of story because it's just they're not the right camera for a lot of breaking news things. There's, there's, there's massive limitations, and you know, as you probably were aware, you know, the transcoding times and all these things it, it were not good for breaking news. And it sort of it was taking up an awful lot of my time, and I was actually spending twice as long, you know, after I'd shot things or, or actually taking longer to shoot them than I probably would have with a normal camera. But the results were a lot more pleasing, and so I moved on from. DSLRs and, and actually um, bought a Sony F3. And I pretty much bought it. Um, uh, I sort of wanted it almost as soon as I heard that it was announced. And then I saw your little um, short film Compulsion and that basically, <laughs> I pulled the pin. After, after seeing that, I was like, that's the camera I want. So it, it met all the requirements that I needed. It was a large sensor camera. I could do um, live crosses straight out of the camera without any external boxes or anything. So... I uh, I travelled to Japan a lot, so I ordered it in Japan, and I actually got the uh, serial number two. 
Now, that's a PL mount camera. That is not the first choice I would have thought to pull off the shelf to uh, go shoot news stories around the world with probably a crew of, I don't know, one. Yep, it's basically just myself and a correspondent, and we have a local, um, you know, a, what's called the industry fixer. I'm sure most people know what a fixer is. It's a local producer who does all the coordinating. So I don't have any, I don't have any assistance. I don't have any backup. You've got deadlines, obviously, but you've got yep. a camera that's producing files that probably needs some processing and treatment and you know compression. And we can talk a little bit about how you get these files to the agency and, and, and the back end of that. But you probably, even before that happens, have a reasonable workflow ahead of you every time you shoot. I, I got the F3. I started using it in Japan. I was on, on an assignment here doing a few different stories and uh, I actually flew back to KL and then three days later the, the um, earthquake tsunami happened here. So oh. I flew straight back here. I took the PMW 350 and I also um, took the F3. Um, I probably took the F3 because I just got it and, <laughs> and it was new and it's a new toy and we all like to play with new toys. Uh, was it the best camera for that particular job? Oh, I still don't know, to be honest. Um, I took it. It ended up giving us a few options because I was able to – a producer actually came with us who used to be an ex-cameraman, so I gave him the uh, PMW 350 and set it up um, with a live uh, satellite transmission, and he was doing those, and I went off to NewsGather. So – I hurriedly on the afternoon uh, that the tsunami happened while I was waiting for my flight, ran into a quick camera store and, and, and uh, purchased a Tamron 18 to 270, one of those super zoom, those cheap right. super zoom lenses, um, just to use on the F3 because I knew it's a disaster zone. You can't go swapping primes around. You know, it's going to take forever. So I went to Japan and I threw that lens on the camera, which was you know, it's cheap and nasty. It's terrible focus rings. It's not the best camera, but it enabled me to get the stuff I needed. There was a lot of times too where I wished I had a, had a normal broadcast camera where there was things that I needed to shoot that I just couldn't get with the F3. But ultimately, I think in the end, I was happy with the results because my stuff was different from most other people's from the disaster. It was, um, you know, a, a lot higher quality image to begin with. And it was all, you know, I tried to shoot as much as I could off the sticks and make everything, try and shoot it like a normal news story without being a rushed. And it worked fine with with deadlines. I mean, it's, you say like the workflow, but um, it's actually quite quicker because, you know, it, I was just shooting to, straight to the SYS cards that natively go into the camera. And then I just take them out and whack them in the side of the express card slide of my 17-inch MacBook Pro. And bang, the transfer time is actually about three or four times quicker than that using um, FireWire to get the, the files off the, um, the PMW350. I'm sure you're not going to leave well enough alone. I'm sure you're going to tinker after that. Well, it depends. I think originally with the F3, I was doing very little tinkering with the, with, with the picture, particularly with the, with the stories from the tsunami, depending on whether I had the time or not. If I had the time, I'd spend the extra time doing a bit of minor tweaking, but uh, it was okay. Um, the trouble with a lot of our stuff, it doesn't matter how, how, you know, high it's recorded or the, the quality, it gets dumbed down because it gets sent over, it gets sent over internet back to, um, to, uh, the, the headquarters in, in Doha and Qatar. How does it work creatively? You're essentially a two man team in that you have a reporter and yourself, I guess, and your fixer. But I mean, are you, are you doing, are you cutting it? head to toe or are you sending back extended rushes and they cut it uh, I'm doing the I'm doing the whole thing start to finish 
Right. So I shoot the stuff, I ingest the stuff, um, we talk about it. I mean, I, I work with this uh, correspondent called Steve Chow most of the time, and he's very much across the whole sort of. He, he started doing the stuff with me with DSLR, and then, he, you know, he's, he's very up with the new technology, and, you know, a lot of times he's good. I can give him the lens bag and say, pass me the 50 mil, pass me the 35 mil, and boom, he can do it, which saves a lot of time. And he understands the workflow and understands how how we have to shoot a story differently you know we have to sort of we talk about it a lot before we shoot it and we try and sort of you know pre-plan it as much as we can um before we do it so then we we collaborate we tinker we do the story it then gets um encoded in a program called quicklink which is uh sort of like uh, it's an ftp so it's a fancy sort of ftp basically and then it gets um transcoded into a smaller file so maybe a three minute story would get dumbed down to a it's normally between about 120 and 180 meg that's the file size and then right. it gets sent off either via internet or through a through a, a began which is like a mobile satellite uplink apart from the satellite stuff this is all mainly happening in hotel rooms and overnight and with hotel internet oh yeah this is all happening either yeah with uh you know, um, internet dongles or hotel internet, wherever you can get internet. Um, big N if you have to. It's editing in the back of cars. It's <laughs> it's editing on the top of roofs of, of buses. It's wherever you can get it. It's wherever you can get it done. And you must be the king of compression now, having uh, probably tinkered for forever, trying to get uh, the best look you can within 180 or so megabytes. Yeah, there's not so much I can do. It, it basically gets encoded at a couple of different rates, and, and, and that's as good as it's ever going to get. So uh, unfortunately, by the time it goes back to Doha and then gets through all the different signal signals and everything and gets sent back out and goes through cable distribution and everything, uh, it probably looks rubbish by the time it gets on air. <laughs> there's a much more creative onus on you to essentially direct the thing cut the thing make it work as a piece top and tail it uh get it to time and you know get ready to shoot the next thing the next day yeah that's it's it's absolutely right and it's uh the deadlines are getting sh- getting tighter and tighter the time you're allowed to shoot is getting shorter and shorter the amount of sleep you're getting is is in less and less so for, for me using something like the f3 some people would probably think i'm crazy for using the f3 but <laughs> I've got it pretty down pat now, and I use it for probably, uh, I'd say, ninety percent of the, sh- the the shooting I do now. I use I, I use the F three, and it's it is a bit of a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice between quality and sometimes missing a shot. But um, I've sort of learned how to get the best out of the camera and and how to use it best to my advantage. And we sort of we shoot accordingly. But if there's stories that the camera's not suited for, I'll, I'll, I'll grab another camera and use that. I won't hesitate. I, I wouldn't take the F3 into a, into a riot or a protest situation or something like that because it's just it's not the right camera for the job. You have to pack pretty lightly, yet you need to have every tool at your um, disposal. Take us through what you're carrying and, and, and how you carry it, I guess. Okay, you you would probably expect that I that I travel light and don't take a lot of stuff, and that's uh, absolutely the complete opposite. On most cases, when I go on an overseas assignment, I have twelve cases of equipment. <laughs> I have. That is not the answer I was expecting. No, <laughs> it's the no. It's probably not the answer most people would think. Um, the reasoning behind that, 
uh, a lot of times when you're going places, I can often be deployed from one place to another, or I could be going somewhere where I have to do live crosses or use a certain bit of kit, and I have to be prepared. A lot of countries and places I go, if something goes wrong or I don't have a particular piece of kit, I just can't go down the road and and and, and grab another one. So I always have a, a second or third backup camera. I have backup battery chargers. I've got big end upload, you know, big end satellite uploads. I've, I've got spare batteries, cables, monitors, edit gear, half a dozen hard drives. You know, everything you can think of. I've pretty much got it. And I leave a lot of stuff at home. There's some stuff I'd love to take, uh, dollies, jibs, all that sort of thing. But there's just there's no time or no room to take them. I've seen the odd slider shot. Oh, uh, yeah, I've got. I do have a slider, <laughs> which I try and. I try and use very uh, sparingly. I think people yes. tend to tend to overuse the slider. Yeah. I've seen a lot of stuff where people every second shots the slider, and you know they, they don't use it correctly. You know, a slider is supposed to be to you know to reveal something or have some sort of sense of movement in it. And just doing a slider with nothing in the foreground or not going from anything is sort of a bit pointless. So I try and use it as sparingly as I can, but sometimes it can add. Um, add something a little nicer to your shot so there's no real glamour then for your presenter it sounds like he's helping push trolleys as well oh yeah he's great he'll he'll carry the tripod and he'll he'll carry extra cases and and, and help me out a lot which is a big advantage i i should say i don't use the f3 with um a lot of the other people i work with because they just don't they just don't understand it or won't have the patience or will wonder why you're using that particular camera. But yeah. if you're working with the same guy and you get a good routine going and you know how you know he works and he knows how you work, it becomes a lot easier and, and you get in a rhythm and you know how to do things to the to the to the best of your ability with the tools that you've got. It's it's I do it for the love of the job and I think it keeps it keeps me creatively going and makes me want to do do a better job by using, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily I, I mean I shouldn't sort of point out the fact that you know just because you've got a good camera doesn't mean the end result's going to be any better i mean it's it's just a, it's just a tool i mean you can go and shoot something with a $1200 camera and and get a really good result or you can take a $60,000 $100,000 camera and, and and do the same thing it's 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 just a tool but the tool should help you in doing what 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 you have to do. One of the yeah. other good reasons about something like a large sensor camera for 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 news type sort of situations is a lot of times, uh, you know, we we do a lot of interviews, and a lot of times I don't get you know I get five to ten minutes to set up the interview, and I get put in some crappy little room that's three meters by four meters. If you use a traditional ENG camera, you, you know you can see the paint peeling off the back wall. Mm, At least yeah. with the F F three, you can throw up, you know, a fifty one four or a thirty five one four or something similar on there, and you can, you know, you can completely knock the background out. So that that, that helps a lot. Well, sounds like you've moved on from the uh, quick grab from the camera shop uh, kit lens zoom. Um, what I what lenses are you using on the F three? Um, I'm predominantly using um, Zeiss ZF twos. Mm-hmm. So I've got uh, – I normally carry around, I think, what have I got now in my kit? About normally carry about six or seven lenses on the road. I've got, a, I've got Zeiss 1.4, 35, 50, 85, uh, 21, 2.8, um, a Nikon uh, 80 to 200, 2.8, and you know, a couple of other couple of other lenses i've also got i I got the sony pl lenses when they first came out and um 
I do use those occasionally, but they are, you know, like most PL lenses, they're big and they're not easy to carry around. Uh, yeah. the, the Zeiss ZF2s, you know, I can put six of them in a slinger bag, whatever, and that's all I need. Now, you've um, done a couple of really great demo videos explaining S-Log on the F3 and also a really good one recently taking really in-depth through the Sound Devices uh, PIX240, which is a brilliant piece of kit. So are you using... I mean, you're using S-Log uh, all the time. But. Yeah, I am, I'm, I am. Well, I'm not using S-Log all the time. Um, de- depending on the shoot, I'll, I'll use it. Um, it. It does make a huge difference on, on the F3, and uh, it's very good in a lot of situations where you may not have time to throw up lights or you've got to do something that's, a, that's, that's very contrast. You can get away with so much more. It, it certainly makes a huge difference to the to, to the F3, and uh, I think now it's it's now available in the US. The the camera now comes with S Log um, included, as as far as I'm aware now. So yeah. uh, I'm sure they'll sell a hell of a lot more of those now. I, I guess it's in direct competition to the to to the C300. Yeah. Um, Dan, Dan Chung, who you will know, went and bought one and uh, and and texts me daily saying, "When are you going to buy a C300? When are you going to buy a C300?" And I'm saying, I keep telling him, "Dan, I've already got a, an F3. I don't need a C300." He goes, "Oh, you'll play with one. You'll want to buy one." And I actually went and had a play in Hong Kong with a with a C300, and um, I love the image quality out of it. It was it was great, but I didn't like. Funnily enough, I mean, I haven't heard anybody else say this, but I, I didn't really like the ergonomics of the camera. I found it almost like for me. Being an ENG shooter, using used to using traditional cameras, it was like going back to a DSLR. So you're using the Pix240 much? Yeah, I, I'm started to use the Pix240 um, quite a bit now. Uh, I, I bought it, and originally I was like, "Oh, geez, it's actually a bit bigger and heavier than I thought it was." <laughs> thought it was going to be, and uh, I was trying to power it off um, Sony Sony batteries on the back, and I was finding that they just weren't lasting. Weren't lasting very long, and so now I've got it uh, hooked up to a V-Lock battery, which is which has added more weight. But mm. uh, the, what I found with the with the F3 is the the onboard native 35 megabits per second codec is actually you know it's it's fine for day to day use. It's, it's actually not a massive difference between it and recording it at say um, 220 megabits per second. But when you go to something like S-Log, where you have to do a fair bit of, you know, grading to the image, if you shoot it on 35 megabits per second in camera, that image falls apart really quickly as soon as you start to try and and try and grade it. So I've been using the Pix now, and uh, and 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 recording everything on there now. Actually, I'm recording not just S-Log, but all my workflow on there because it's actually it's very convenient. Then I've got a backup on the S by S cards if something goes wrong. And I just take the little Pix caddy out of the side, whack it into, um, use the USB three slot into the side of the Mac, and um, and off I go. I mean, you spend a lot of time on the road. Let's talk about that. The time you spend away, and just the the, the travel time, and uh, hotels, and being constantly in the air. And how many days are away during a year? I'm away roughly close to about three hundred days a year. Wow, and that's about. It's about 60 international flights um, on average, sometimes more, and I seem to spend half my life sitting in the back of a van going from somewhere to somewhere else. And the rest of the time in a hotel room cutting away, I and, guess. And, yeah, every night in a hotel room, you know, you shoot long, long, long day during the day and then you drive 
hours sometimes to where your hotel is. You check by the time you check in, you get up, you unpack stuff, you charge up the fifteen different things you've used to get them ready again. You ingest the vision. Um, you may end up starting to cut a story, then you transmit it. You might go to bed at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. You get up at seven, you do it again, and this can go on for three weeks, four weeks at a time, no days off. Okay, well, tips for the people, you know, for people who are living this this sort of somewhat of this life or a taste of it or a week at a time or so, how do you manage the whole hotel life and taking up every PowerPoint in the room trying to charge 10 things and having to swap battery, wake up three times in the night to change batteries and, you know, what? any advice for the weary shooting traveller? Uh, I guess it just... It's it's a matter of being organized, I think. You you have to constantly be reminding yourself in your head, you know, what what do I need today, what do I need to what do I need to charge, what do I need to do. So you need to have a like a routine. My routine is always I get into the room, I unpack my computer, I pull out all my hard drives, I pull out everything that needs to be charged, I I plug everything in straight away. That's the first thing I do as soon as I, I, I get back. So apart from that, um, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's 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 tough, but it's it's one of those things that it's like any job. If you get used to doing something, uh, I, I mean, I'm used to doing this now. I've been doing this um, basically for five years. This sort of traveling all the time, sort of thing, and I actually find I sleep better in hotel beds than I do in my own bed when I get home. How is what you do changed in, say, the last two, three years? Um, I guess it's the classic thing as everybody else is you're asked to do more work in less time or is there a bigger picture than that? Uh, no, it progressively gets um, more and more work. Uh, I mean, back in the old days when I first started, you know, you'd go out and you'd shoot the story and then you'd hand the, the tape to somebody else and then it was then it was their problem. Nowadays, it's, it's totally... F- a lot of cases in the news business, it's it's a one-man band. You're the guy who does everything. You're the sound guy, the lighting guy, the cameraman, the director, the producer, the editor, the sat guy. You have to do everything. And with these demands, um, particularly with 24-hour news, there's there's more expected of you. You get less time to to do things. You're, you're asked to not only cut a story, but nowadays what I have to do is I have to cut a story. And if it's not for immediate broadcast straight away, I have to cut two minutes of rushes and that mightn't sound like much but by the time i put two minutes of the rushes on the end of an edit and a promo and then encode it and then send it off it means you know i'm stuck up looking at a computer screen watching files <laughs> go from one side to the other for an extra in some cases you know hour or two and that's an extra one or two hours sleep that i don't get yeah how do you deal with i mean as part of a yeah, as a news professional, how you how do you deal with the you get to see the best and the worst of humanity and life and disasters and things? How do you deal with that? It's almost in some way has to be bordering on post traumatic sometimes. Uh, that's a, that's it's a very good question. Um, I think you you try I I try when I'm in one of these situations to. I'm I'm there to do a specific job, and I'm focused on 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 getting my job um, done and 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 doing it 
to the best of my ability without getting too caught up in, in, in what I'm doing. But you also, you know, in, in cases like this tsunami and stuff, you want to be respectful of the people around you. you I, I don't see the point in a lot of cases of going and jamming a camera in somebody's face who's just lost an entire, entire family because it's, it's not only disrespectful, but it could be done in a way where you don't have to upset their, their, their personal space. I mean, a classic case of this was uh, one or two days after the, the tsunami happened and, and I saw these guys uh, out of the corner of my eye in, in the distance and they were, they were frantically trying to get a car door open. And, um, and I didn't want to go running up there. So I shot on the long end from a fair distance and, and, and these two guys had, had just discovered that their, um, that their mother and their, and their three nieces were in the car dead. And you know this is the this is the ultimate sort of worst possible time in this person's life, and you don't want to go and stuff uh, stuff a camera in their face. You can still cover it by being respectful and showing it from 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 a distance. But it's hard not to get caught up in these things. You have to feel you're not human if you don't feel something for, for the story. And you know I, I meet a lot of incredible people. I, I think I'm very lucky with the job that I do because I get to travel all over the place and meet some amazing people and you see people at the best of times and people at the absolute worst of times and 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 you remember all these things vividly in your head but you have to look at it in a professional way and sometimes put it put it in the back of your mind that you're there to do a job and if you get too emotionally caught up in it you you can't do your job properly matt how can people find out more how can they contact you where's the best place to check out your work etc uh, they can check me out. I'm the, the Dan has now made me the technical editor of DSLRNewsShooter.com. Right. And you can also find me at Twitter at uh, Matt Al Jazeera, A-L-J-A-Z-E-E-R-A, or uh, find me on Facebook. Well, again, thanks, mate, for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure I've probably uh, cut into your charging editing no, no. Stuff's, stuff's charged stuff's, ch- stuff's charging and uh and rendering as we speak in the background <laughs> excellent so quickly where have you just been and where are you off to uh i'm currently in japan covering the uh, one year anniversary of the uh tsunami so i'm traveling up and down the the, the northeast coastline doing um doing various stories and then i'll be uh going to Hong Kong and then back to Kuala Lumpur and uh, do a few things there and then it'll be uh, off to NAB. Excellent. Catch you there. Yeah, I'll see you there. Thanks, Matt, for taking the time. Appreciate it. Uh, you can check out a lot of... Uh, he's prolific, actually, on, on Vimeo. His, um, his thing on uh, S-Log, I think it's S-Log for dummies. Yeah. He's really good. It's a really good sort of stuff. A-B comparison yeah. of, uh, you know, um, with and without S-Log on the F3. Really terrific. And he's done this really, he would admit, overly comprehensive review on their sound devices, uh, the Pix240, which is really catching on. Um, that's a really great. If you're looking at that device, that's an excellent hands-on review. Um, plus, he's you can uh, see a lot of the um, revisiting uh, Fukushima videos that he uh, just finished shooting when we interviewed him then. So, yeah, lots to check out there, and that's obviously all in these show notes, and I just said obviously again. Okay. <laughs> hey, um, I just wanted to flag uh, Lightroom 4's come out now. Yeah. We mentioned Lightroom 4 before when it was its ability to uh, read R3D files, first mm. appeared in beta. 
Um, yeah, I forgot you probably said that because I just opened that today and I went, holy shit, but, I'm reading HDRXs. Yes, but there's something else I wanted to flag on it, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, over on the FX PhD blog, uh, Jeff Hughes has done a thing on geotagging your images. So this is something that works really well in Lightroom 4. Uh, Jeff just went up to Adobe to do a uh, walk around San Francisco and like, you know, a photo walk. Yeah. And then went to Adobe and then had a lecture on what was coming down the pipeline from Adobe, including special stuff on Lightroom 4. And during all of this, he was um, geotagging everything. And so he points to the new Canon geotagging device, which I think is still on um, pre-order, or must be on pre-order, on B&H and stuff. But he says, well, I can do all this with my iPhone. And he goes through all the steps of doing it. And the reason we posted it on FX Guide or other FX PhD is because it's a really great location survey tool. So if you're right. location surveying and you want to take a lot of photos, how cool would it be if you could, which you can, you know, go somewhere, take lots of photos. Oh, absolutely. And then I give you the files and you can see exactly where uh, everything is. Now, in the case of the That would Canon, have been excellent actually this week because I just was uh, shooting in like rural New South Wales and I'd shot all these excellent, oh, here's this fantastic gnarly looking tree. Exactly. And shot a couple of shots of it with the 5D and um, and then I wanted to go back and find out where it was. And I knew it was somewhere along this road, but I couldn't remember. Was it before Orange or after Orange? It was after Orange or before Molong. And trying to find it in before sunrise on the road uh, would have been excellent if I yeah, sort of knew exactly where the hell I was. Well, um, the Canon one, the geotagger that uh, is the GPS add-on unit that sits in the hot shoe where the flash would sit actually told you which uh, direction you're looking. So at that spot, you were looking west. Right, of but course. But that costs 260 bucks or 270 bucks. Mm. Jeff's thing costs three, and um, it's really good. Anyway, it's a good tutorial um, if you want to know how to geotag stuff. I think it's perfect for doing location surveys and uh, what we would call a, a recce here, as in a reconnaissance. Um, yeah. But yeah, so really, really useful. Jeff's got a crystal clear explanation of how it works so i just recommend that um i was wondering did you have a uh a twitter for this week or as i have one if you don't you have one go for it so uh the twitter name is k-i-r-e-i-i-i-i four eyes um he's a freelance compositor director producer in um i'm gonna say sweden but it's i'm pretty sure it's europe uh-huh. But as I can't read the language, no, it is Sweden. Um, it's uh, my wife had chipped me for making that joke. Um, she speaks fluent Swedish. It's a in-house joke, anyway. Um, yeah, so he um, literally has been pinging me and twittering me and saying, "Why are we going to do another RC?" So to prove that I pay attention, I'm I am giving the entire RC um, tweet shout out over to you. There you go. Um, so if you're a listener and uh, you want to suddenly up your Let's see, how many has he got? He's got 141 followers. So I want you all to go to K-I-R-E-I-I-I-I and see if we can push him up a lot higher in his uh, Twitter followers. Excellent. And that just means that he's going to have to start Twittering in English. Okay. Well, he can. He does that. He just obviously didn't speak to me in Swedish. Hey, um... Okay, that's me. That's us. That's us for another week. Um, don't forget, big news next week. We'll um, announce that. And uh, thanks to our sponsors um, uh, for being with us again this week. And we've got um, more stuff coming up that's uh, happening over on the VFX show, also the uh, the FX Guide TV, which I want you guys to check out. We've been putting them out about one a week lately. I don't know if we'll be able to sustain that. Well, we won't. But we just have a lot of content at the moment, a lot of really interesting stuff. And then we're going to have a lot of really interesting stuff coming out of NAB, which is about, I'm going to say, the 16th of April. But until then, uh, next week. Thanks, Jase. Thanks, guys.
See you. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.